Ich warte seit Wochen auf diesen Tag und tanz vor Freude über den Asphalt. Als wär's ein Rhythmus, als gäb's ein Lied, das mich immer weiter durch die Straßen zieht. Hallo und willkommen zu Gegenpressing, der Bundesliga-Podcast vom Football Grad Network. I'm your host, Bryce Dunn. And joining me, as always, but across the water this time, is Manu Vets. Manu, how you been? Yeah, I've been pretty good. Busy weekend. Stuttgart on Friday, Bayern yesterday. So good times, but um, happy to be back in Munich as well. And you know, my hometown. So it's really nice to be back in Germany. And I'm really excited for this podcast. Yes, definitely. We're all excited, I think. And uh, that means obviously Manu and I are joined as always. Chris Williams. Chris, how have you been? Not, not so much travel for you, I'm guessing. No, I've still got a month, um, unfortunately, so I'm very jealous seeing Manu's back in Germany. But yeah, I've got a month to go and hopefully should be at um, Stuttgart versus Bayern. Um, and then a nice little weekend in Freiburg, Bryce, because I was so impressed when I went for the uh, match day one that I'm going to take my family there for Christmas. Sounds lovely. Yeah, very exciting times eh, as we edge closer and closer to Christmas. But as Manu said, we do have a very special and a very uh, unique pod uh, this week. So we will touch on the Bundesliga as always, but we're going to have a bit of a club special. Why? Because we've got a fantastic guest uh, joining us in Raphael Honigsan. Rafa, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I'm sure it's been a very busy week for you. Yeah, it's been it's been busy. Um, thank you for having me. Um, a little bit busy with launching uh, Klopp's book and, of course, Champions League coming up for BT. So, yeah, interesting times, but that's what that's what we want. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm sure you, this won't be the first or last pod that you're on about uh, your book, but that's the way we want today. So um, I suppose, guys, uh, let's touch a little bit on the Bundesliga this weekend before we jump in to our Klopp Heavy uh, special. Not the best week, really, for Klopp's old side in Borussia Dortmund. Chris, um, what exactly is going on here? They managed to lose on the Friday night game, 2-1 away to Stuttgart. Um, alarm bells are ringing, no doubt. Yeah, they are. And we've spoken over the last few weeks that even though the results aren't going the way, the play has been particularly you know, not of a bad standard. And it, it, it was a gain on Friday night in flashes. Um, the possession was very good. The distribution of the ball was okay. But once again, and I don't know how many times we've said this now, there was a calamity at the back, especially for the first goal. Um, and then a little toothless up front. And I think those days of putting four and five past teams seem a very, very long way away now. And um, yeah, it's not looking particularly good um, for Peter Bosch. I don't think it's been helped um, for the circus now that's surrounded him by the fact that um, Bayern... Um, got rid of Ancelotti and uh, brought in Heikenness and and they've just flown and taken off. There's a lot of pressure on them at the moment. Um, they've got a really crucial game midweek in the Champions League. You would expect them to drop into the Europa League. Um, so yeah, it's it's not a good time. I've spoken to um, some people I know over um, out in Dortmund, and yeah, it's they're just a little bit down as you would expect if you'd seen your football club go from the top of the league you know, dropping a little bit further um, is it a big crisis not 100% sure it's a massive crisis because let's not forget you know they're not the bottom of the league in a relegation zone they just had a really bad well it's going to be September October and November now isn't it yeah Chris they dropped 14 points in comparison to Bayern since Heinkes is taking over that's <sighs> And, and that yeah, thing that's hurting um, Peter Bosch more than anything, the, the mm-hmm. fact that this comparison's going on. Yeah, it is. And But, you know, I was at this game and um, talked, um, as many people have, Marcel Schmelzer was the only one who actually talked to the press extensively um, after the game. And it, they seem almost clueless about what's going on. And um, there's all these questions asked of course by journalists about Peter Bosch, the lack of a plan B, the, the fact that he's training less than uh, predecessors have done and the fact that you know that um, the, the amount of sprint numbers are down, the amount of average kilometers are, run down, are down and it feels like Dortmund are playing, they didn't actually play that badly, they just as you said they played toothless and you never really had a feeling that they would score a goal in this game. So it's, um, 
yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's a I would say it's definitely a crisis. And when you when you sense the the way the officials reacted, uh, Borussia Dortmund officials reacted after this game, I think there is definitely not they're not considering firing Bosch. But I don't know how many more bad results the fans are going to accept. And there's a real sense when you look at Twitter, when you look at the media, that the fans had it with Bosch to a certain extent. Yeah, I mean, anyone that tunes into the podcast will know that uh, this year we kind of uh, predicted that uh, Bruce Dortmund would have a good year and really kick on. Uh, Raphael, are you a little bit surprised just at the the way that uh, Dortmunds haven't really... Um, well, we'll take on the challenge uh, to, to get to the top of the, the Bundesliga and really bring it to Bayern, especially when they're under a, they've had a bit of a transitional start to the year. The thing that's so surprising and what makes it so difficult for people to accept is the trajectory of Dortmund's problems because going into the season, there was a lot of doubt. There was a lot of um, uh, you know concern that Bosch's system was not going to work straight away, the high pressing, the uh, very uh, high line that they seemed to play, the, the change from the Tuchel style, change of personnel to a certain extent. But when they started so well, all these fears were allayed. And of course, it combined with Bayern's um, complete loss of shape and, uh, and drop off in performances under Ancelotti. And I saw a lot of people in Dortmund um, saying, quite confidently saying, okay, this is going to be Dortmund's first real shot at a title since 2012. And I myself believed it. And since they've fallen away so dramatically um, and Bayern have rebounded as strongly as they have, it's much harder to, to kind of get your head around it because... I think we expected it to happen the other way around, you know, a slow start and then gradual improvement as they learn to learn to get adjusted to the system. Um, but the more Bosch seems to tweak it and reacting to the problems, the the less of a shape and of a, a coherence seems to be happening on the pitch. So I think there is at the moment a general sense, and this goes beyond, I think, the 11 players, this also goes into the areas of Obama Young and Mislin Tut and all the stuff that happens in the background of a club that uh, is falling apart a little bit at the moment. And I think that is the, the big worry that they're not just having a bad season, but having the sort of season where a lot of people seem to think maybe um, I should move on and maybe this is not really going to be a club for me where I can fulfill my potential. And that is the real worry, I think, for Dortmund. Yeah, maybe just to add one thing, um, Rafael, to this, I get the sense that if they had the amount of points that they have right now, it, that is actually not the real issue. The issue is really the, just the last four games. Let's say they had dropped the same amount of points, but it would have been kind of consistent uh, build up, or maybe you know a game dropped here, a game dropped there, but it's the, the fact that this has been going on for such a long stretch now. I think that's really what worries people the most and it's exaggerating all these things that you've just mentioned yeah and i would i would add to that that some of the results in the beginning of this bad spell you could maybe excuse and say you know that they were a little bit unlucky it didn't really reflect the game i mean the way they lost the spurs for example they were of course uh quite naive and open but they created enough on another day they draw that game and we're talking about a completely different champions league campaign but now the performances have actually caught up with the results um, yeah. in a negative sense. And that's, that's very depressing. And it puts Bosch, I think, in a, in a very weak position because you don't see at the moment any real signs of improvement. Yeah, Chris, um, talking about Bosch, you're obviously um, quite close to Dortmund. Uh, would you see it as possibly a time to, well, change the man at the helm? It's a difficult one, isn't it? I would, I would normally err a little bit of caution and maybe say, should they wait till the winter break? But you look how quickly Bayern acted and how quickly they've turned it around. And you know, as Manu said, they made that fourteen-point gap up in essence, and now they're flying on top of the league again. And it's a difficult one, isn't it? Uh, I mean, I think we should see how midweek goes. If there's a poor display midweek, I would be expected 
to see him there for much longer. Chris, if they play like they played against Stuttgart, there's no way they're going to have a positive result. Oh no, and uh, you know, no I was way. I was at Wembley for the Spurs game, and you know they were just picked apart at will, weren't they? Although they, you know, they had the they had the possession at times, and they were very good. And Yarmolenko scored a fantastic goal, and they did look a threat going forward. But you know, the right hand side of defense was just torn apart by Kane and Son, and, and it's never looked the same since then for me. I think at this point we need to move on to uh, Bayern Munich and speak about them on Saturday. They managed a 3-0 win at home to Augsburg. Rafael, uh, I mean, w- when people, um, well, they, we kind of raised an eyebrow a little bit when, when Heinkes came back to the club. A lot of people were suggesting that maybe he'd been out of football too long. Um, his, his you know, tactics are going to be a bit dated uh, and Bayern are going to struggle. But that doesn't seem to be the way at all at the moment. They, they absolutely breeze through this and seemed to be um, going full steam ahead. Yeah, I don't think there was any doubt that uh, tactically, you know, so much had happened in the last uh, four years that Heinkes with his ideas would be old-fashioned. I don't think football has actually moved on that much. And in Peter Hammond, he has a guy who is pretty astute. And there's a reason why Bayern had to pay a lot of money to Fortuna to get him out of there because he basically does uh, to Heinkes what Löw used to do to, to Klinsmann. Um, you know, he is the man who does a lot of the detailed work on the pitch and, and off it. Hankers is the figurehead. Hankers is the, the man manager. Hankers is the guy who, uh, who holds it all together. My bigger concern, if you will, if, if there is enough of, um, enough of tactical work really going on to get Bayern back to those levels. I think when he left, they, benefited still greatly from Louis van Gaal's position, position football. They had players in Lahm and Schweinsteiger who had that system sort of almost in their blood, blood and they had players on the flanks who you just have to give the ball to them and something would happen. Um, and then even when they played on the counter-attack, as they did so um, spectacularly well against Barcelona, they they managed to to adapt to similar to different situations. I think with this team, which is a team that doesn't really know what kind of team it is anymore, I think to an extent, he's trying to set the back set back the clock. He's trying to play 2013 football. A lot of emphasis on the flanks. Javi Martinez as a as a guy in front of the back four, protecting it. But I just don't quite yet seem see the same kind of understanding and rhythm and kind of control that they used to have before. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it has been lost. Uh, and I guess the good news is that he still has three or four months possibly to get it right before the really important games happen. So for Bayern, it looks very, very positive. They managed domestically to win all the, the big games. They've got one left in Dortmund in the cup. But at the moment, you don't even think that Dortmund will be competitive the way things are going. So Bayern have come from a situation where they looked as if they would have a disaster of a season by their standards to yet again being uh, so dominant that they can really concentrate on on the Champions League. So that bodes quite well for Bayern, but I really still need to see a bit more by way of collective improvement before we can talk of them, I think, realistically as Champions League challenges again. Uh, I think there's still some ground made up for that and I think the Paris game will perhaps give us uh, some clue just how quickly this team keep progressing because so far not everything has been as convincing as the results the results have papered over some cracks I think yeah I would definitely go along with that I think um, I spoke spoke to Mark Lovell yesterday at the Bayern game and uh, he said something I 100% agree with if that same game the first 30 minutes would have been under Carlo Ancelotti they would have been whistling in boost from the stands um, Jupp Heynckes has a little bit of a bonus because of 2013 and I think that what he's done is he's really getting the best out of all these brilliant individuals and um, you know the likes of Kimmich for example carried the team. Artur Vidal had a fantastic game yesterday, loaded a lot of the weight on his shoulders but it wasn't a tactical masterpiece, it was basically a bunch of individuals showing you know, showing the best and um, these individuals are better than your average Augsburg side. So they really just carried it through that way. But it wasn't a brilliant performance by any means. 
Hi, this is Rachel Fisher. And this is Desi Jenikin. And we host the Hollywood Crime Scene Podcast. We're really excited to tell you about the best Christmas ever on AMC+, where every day feels like Christmas morning. From new holiday favorites like Elf and National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation to modern and iconic family classics, you can spend the holiday season opening only the good stuff. And with new series, episodes, movies, and fresh content arriving every week, AMC Plus is the gift that keeps on giving all year long. Sign up today at amcplus.com. AMC Plus, only the good stuff. It wouldn't be the holiday season if there wasn't candy, right? Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. Price. No, definitely not. And that leaves the top four looking very interesting and a little bit unexpected in places after that game weekend with Bayern Munich sitting on top, Schalke in second, uh, RB Leipzig third, and Borussia Mönchengladbach moving up to fourth above Borussia Dortmund. But obviously we've got uh, Raphael on the podcast today and I feel that it's time for us to move in the direction that his uh, book is taking. His latest book is out, uh, Klopp Bring the Noise. So it's going to be a Klopp heavy pod and i'm very excited me being a liverpool fan chris being a liverpool fan or we've been looking forward to this moment since we started the pod i feel but um obviously talking about a uh, club's uh career in football um a lot of people kind of overlook that he was at mainz and that's where it all began we're obviously very familiar with him running up and down the sidelines at liverpool and in dortmund but uh less or so maybe mainz um Raphael, if we look at those moments you know, when he was at Mainz, I mean, what kind of manager, what type of coach, sorry, should I say, uh, was he back then and how much did he learn from his time there? I think a lot of the stuff that he would later find success with at Dortmund and uh, at least the beginnings of it, uh, Liverpool can go, can be traced back to Mainz, which was kind of a miniature version of, uh, of Dortmund and a, and a more miniature version of Liverpool. In the sense that I think he realized the importance of creating a kind of symbiotic relationship between the players, the fans in the stadium, but also the people around him. That success at, at that level uh, with those financial means would only be found if everybody really bought into it. And family is not a word he ever used, but I think it comes down more to energy and to this ability to... Um, combined together and in joining forces suddenly kind of free up extra energy that wouldn't necessarily be there. And his coaching is very much geared to that. It was always from the first moment he coached, trying to get a reaction from the fans, but also from the players. So coaching for him is coaching also during games, trying to get the players to do stuff. And he feels that is, that is his job. And I think he learned all these things at Mainz. And he learned also, I think, never to think of uh, possibilities or uh, or challenges or um, you know potential signings or um, big targets but rather focus at the job at hand in the sense of a first of all getting the best really the best out of the team he had and out of the players he had all the time because he couldn't afford not to didn't have the money to, you know, write off half the team and ask for new players all the time. And also to really, even though it is a cliche, I think it's, it's just 100% true for him to really take every game uh, as it comes and to get that every game as it comes mentality, drum it into the, really into the players. Because that's, I think, half the battle won. If you take every game with a similar seriousness, whether it's Southampton or Chelsea, whether it's, uh, you know, Seville or... Uh, or Hoffenheim, I think that gets you a long way to doing your job properly. And it's something that's it goes against human nature to a certain extent. Um, I think we all sometimes like to go the way of the least resistance. But if you get somebody to be so ultra-professional, to really try his best every single time, he 
I think lives that he he is the role model for that kind of attitude. And talking to you know players at all these three clubs, I get a sense that he's getting um, a lot of joy in instilling exactly that mentality at Liverpool, which has been so successful at Dortmund and of course on their own uh, sort of level uh, at Mainz before that. Raphael, I think it's introduced quite early in the book, isn't it, where um, people at Mainz saw, and, and you've written it, they saw a coach behaving like the 12th man, effectively playing the game on the touchline. And this is a massive Klopp trait, which I think you know we've seen at Dortmund and I've certainly seen at Liverpool a, a lot. But I found it really interesting when I was reading the book that um, he was laughed at at first. There's a bit where um, he's pronounced at the press conference, Klopp will be the coach here. And all the press laughed at him. So he was never a natural um, successor, was he, when he took over? Well, I think he, he would say he was a natural successor. And I think by now, Heidel would say he was also a natural successor. But at the time, nobody could believe it. Nobody could believe that a player could just be a coach. I mean, it was basically unheard of. Um, and certainly not a player who'd done, never done anything. I think it's one thing for uh, Gianfranco Zola or for Ruth Hulid to go from player to coach. Um, you know, from one day to the next. But for Klopp, you know, yes, he was the captain, but what had he done? And this is still a time in the mid-90s in Germany where players who were successful were then seen as natural coaches. I mean, it was clear to everybody that Klaus Augenthaler and Guido Buchwald and Lothar Matthäus and Karl-Heinz Rieder would be top coaches because they won the World Cup. Of course, they're going to be great coaches. And if you're a second division player, who scored, I don't know, 30 goals in his life and it's just this guy at the back, why, why, why would that make you a coach? I mean, so the idea, not just of Klopp, but sort of of what he represented, was seen as ludicrous at the time. And I think one of his greatest achievements, in a way, is to change all that without him really being a trailblazer in saying or in basically proving that it doesn't matter what kind of level you played almost um there would be no Tuchel there would be no Nagelsmann none of these guys would be anywhere near the Bundesliga if it hadn't been for Klopp's success and I think that is one of his real big impacts that he's had that perhaps is still underestimated for for young by younger people who you know who've grown up with the Bundesliga being very forward-looking and uh, and modern and happy to give young players a chance. This is something that certainly wasn't around uh, 20 years ago, or less than 20 years ago. We're talking about 16 years ago when he was made coach. Yeah, maybe uh, one little anecdote from the time. I remember, I think it was still called uh, DSF, Deutsche Sportfernsehen at the time. Mm -hmm. And they always used to, um, it was kind of like a soap opera, I guess, where they would really closely follow Mainz for the entire season and Klopp would pick up players and drive them to training and he was just the one of the guys and that's something when I watched it and I was in my teens at the time still I thought this is very different from you know all the other coaches that you mentioned or certainly very different from what someone like Matthias would have done it was it was completely against the norm but it was captivating in a way because he spoke the way he spoke to his players the way he behaved it was just you know just one of the guys, really. And I, I thought that was like, oh, this is interesting. I'm going to be curious to see how that follows. And I think that built a lot into this whole Mainz tradition and the, the way that the club became really almost like an alternative club for some time. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I think his relationship was, was really a player coach for a long, long time. But what's also, I think, interesting is that uh, Mainz, then made it um, sort of part of their DNA, not necessarily to get these kind of managers in who were sort of, uh, you know, matey or anything, but actually to get managers in who played a system that the club wanted and then look for the right players rather than doing it the other way around. And that's, again, that's something that goes back to Wolfgang Frank and goes back to Klopp and his, his way of working. And again, I think that was hugely influential in the way that uh, football was being looked at because it used to be always certainly in Germany about the individuals if you had great, great players then of course you won games and the coach's job was just to do be like an Ancelotti just to keep everybody happy and make sure that the best players are on the pitch and run a lot um, and 
the idea that you could win stuff by way of a system or, or at least you know be be competitive i wouldn't say it ends and start it starts necessarily with mines but mines along with hoffenheim were really clearly um one of the teams that that made that thinking possible and again uh, i wrote a little bit about uh, klopp and that whole sort of brand of coaching and das reboot but i think without him and without what mines did German football would have would have taken a lot longer to sort of reach modernity. He really, I think, has as huge as um, huge merit and huge credit should go towards him for for helping Germany kind of come to realize that football could be thought about in different terms, and it all starts with him at Mainz. And also played in a very different kind of way, right? Yeah, absolutely. The the pressing, the um, I mean, game pressing is interesting because I asked asked Pete Kravitz, uh, his number three, uh, where does game pressing really come from? And he basically says, in a way, it's something that everyone has done for a long, long time. And in German, it's called nachsetzen. Mm-hmm. So, you you lose the ball, you don't switch off, you put pressure on the guy. But of course, it's a completely different story if one guy loses the ball or if one guy loses the ball and then suddenly there's five people bearing down on the poor left back who just got the ball back. And of course, that's when it gets interesting and that's when it becomes very, very complicated because if you don't do it properly, obviously you leave huge gaps and it's, it's a suicidal uh, kind of tactic. So the way, the way I think they perfected it, certainly in the, in the third and fourth Dortmund season, made it suddenly, I think, a kind of realistic tactic. Before that, I think it was too too avant-garde, too difficult to pull off, too draining in terms of the physical and mental demands. And it's only once you do it that people think, okay, here's a proof of concept. Um, and, you know, even at Mainz, because they had terrible players, I mean, they, they scraped by, they, they came 11th twice, which was an amazing success, but then they were relegated. So I think you then still need to actually go and win something playing that way before people really think, aha, you know, this is, this is actually um, a viable strategy for us. And, uh, and, he, and he did it. You know, he did it before Rangnick and he did it uh, in a way that also was able to communicate Uh, very sophisticated ideas in a very simplistic language that didn't sound patronizing to people, that didn't sound academic. Any Everything that Rangnick sort of got wrong in, in talking to the public about his tactics, Klopp got right. And again, I would say, from a German point of view, that's why he's been so hugely important for, for German football, because he managed to get those ideas across um, without offending or losing half of the audience. And they're thinking, you know, this is just really boring academic stuff. Leave me alone. I think that's really fascinating that you point that out, Raphael, because I remember Ralf Rangnick, he was in ZDF, right, when he, when he had that uh, sports studio, uh, the sports studio, and um, afterwards he was labeled the football professor because half the people that watched that show didn't understand what he was talking about, right? Yeah. And they, the reaction in German football is always, if I don't understand it, then it doesn't make sense. And I think yeah. that's really what Klopp did so much better, in a way. It was his presentation more than anything else, that he was so, he's always been so good in just really simple terms, explain it. And I think that's really why people also really flock to him. Yeah, he's a fantastic communicator. And you could just see when he had that success as a TV pundit for ZDF and at the Confed Cup 2005, at the World Cup in 2006, that if there's a guy who can talk like this to 80 million, then you could get a really good view uh, or understanding how you would communicate to his players. And I think without that, Dortmund never quite have the courage to go for him because when they go for him in 2008, he is a second division coach. I mean, it's unthinkable now. Let's see, Bosch gets fired tomorrow. Would Dortmund look in the second division to get a coach there? Not a million years, but back then they realized that this guy has something and he has enough of a charisma and enough of a force of nature to get these ideas through. And then they, they, 
they even used him, something I kind of forgot maybe or didn't realize, they even used him sort of as an advertising. You know, he became the testimonial for Dortmund. Like, they didn't sell enough season tickets. They put him on the, on the, on the banner um, on big uh, outdoor advertising and people suddenly thought, oh, yeah, well, Klopp is there. It's going to be fun. It's going to be exciting. I'm going to buy tickets. So it, it really is a story that, even though it's not that long ago, already seems kind of fantastical and almost a bit of a fairy tale and it would be impossible to repeat today. Yeah, I think also people always remember Dortmund as a big club, but when Klopp went there, Dortmund were almost bankrupt and well, pretty much were bankrupt and were really rescued at the last minute and then he went there and I think people almost forget that short period of time where Dortmund were on the brink of, of no longer existing. And I think that's that's something that I, when you talk to people, like Dortmund's always been a big club, I'm like, well, yeah, not really. They certainly underestimate just how much trouble Dortmund mm -hmm. was in yeah. and how much the, the, the fans, I think, had, had begun to lose confidence in the club. Um, again, this is something that I didn't really sort of remember that well, but... The, the people I talked to at Dortmund, they said, you know, the, the football was so bad under Thomas Dahl. People were so tired. There was, like, really slow possession football. It was going nowhere. They're eighth or twelfth in the table. Um, they just had kind of lost all excitement about going to the games. And, and Dortmund were in real danger of becoming sort of a nothing club in, in, in the middle of the table. And that... You know, reading that again just made me think of Liverpool and uh, and the relationship that the fans had to the football there under under Rodgers in his last year and that complete sense of sort of um, deflation and there is no point going because it's going to be another, you know, season of nothingness. Um, and, and Dortmund were really in a very similar spot before he took over there in 2008. And in a very, very short space of time, things changed and improved quite dramatically. First of all, the football, people got very, very excited and they finished in sixth, but it was seen as a big success. And then they finished in fifth. And of course, the next season already, they won the title. So um, it's going to be harder to replicate that kind of rapid improvement in the Premier League where you have much more depth uh, at the very top. And, and it's going to be a harder job placing, uh, displacing the teams ahead of you. But at the same time, you could see that there is stuff happening and things are going in the right direction and some of the boredom and, and kind of depression has already lifted that people have already have kind of forgotten about it because it's already gone for such a long time. I think people already, you know, don't even think about it anymore. But it was almost as bad as it was with Dortmund before he, kept, before he got there. Well, that's it. It was in 2008 when uh, Klopp joined uh, Borussia Dortmund. Um, obviously, as you had said, uh, Raphael, things weren't great um, under Thomas Doyle, and they had finished 13th in the Bundesliga. But uh, just to ask you, Raphael, um, taking it more from a Jurgen's point of view, um, did he feel a lot of pressure, a lot of stress? Um, did he worry much about how he was going to get on it? You know, a club that um, we're obviously in. in you know, a higher position than what Mainz were, but also the fans were hoping to, well, that he would be almost, um, well, I don't know, a breath of fresh air at the club. You know, did he put much pressure on himself? It doesn't strike me as a guy who puts a lot of pressure on himself or thinks of coaching in terms of pressure and uh, and and worries and stuff. He, I really think he enjoys enjoys what he does. He enjoys working with players and he has that really amazing ability to come back from a big loss you know severe in the Europa League or or a big heavy defeat in the Premier League and comes back and thinks oh it's so great you know I'm in I'm in Anfield I can train with these amazing guys and we've got a chance to win the next game in three days time I mean that's really his way of thinking it's I think it's informed by his by his experiences uh, where you know he's been in many difficult spots and always found a way to bounce back Uh, it's in informed by his religious belief, I think, where he sees kind of a bigger picture and thinks, you know, this is this is just football. At the end of the day, we're all really blessed to be doing this. Um, there's no need to to worry about stuff you cannot change that happened already. Let's concentrate on what we can do going forward. And he's got this unbelievably positive outlook on things, but positive in a in a more maybe authentic and genuine 
sense that we have seen from some players who always, sorry, from some managers who always seem to smile and have that kind of almost sort of California type fakeness about them where you just don't, don't really believe it. With him, you do. You absolutely believe that he doesn't think about what could go wrong and could I lose this game? And, you know, what happens if I lose another cup final? Just, I don't think the guy thinks in that way at all. And all self-doubt and, and this, all these problems, I think he leaves that to the number two, number three. They, I think, second-guess themselves a lot more and the football a lot more than Klopp. Klopp just believes that if you keep working hard and do stuff the right way, then you get the right results. And, of course, in his 16 years, ultimately, he's always been right. Uh, there's fluctuation. There are bad spells. There are big setbacks. But by and large, um, it's, it's worked for him. And I think he has that tremendous confidence that comes from, from a guy who, for 16 years, basically has, has had success by and large. And even when he hasn't had success, like, you know, doesn't go up twice on the last day of the season. Uh, huge, huge blow. You think Mainz will never get promoted again, but then the third time he does it or he goes down and then doesn't come up or he finishes second, seventh with Dortmund in his last season. Even all those things, I think he kind of turns them around and said, you know, uh, A, it could have been worse. B, I learned a lot from it. C, I can, it taught me things to do differently so it won't happen again. Uh, he is really, I think, in that sense, a very remarkable coach and very different to, as, certainly as a few coaches that I've discovered, who put on a great show but know uh, or you just know that they're quite insecure and second-guess themselves all the time, and then they become very political and play little games to sort of um, fortify their own position and worry about a lot of these things. And he just does not. He just does not care. He, the guy is, is totally in in harmony with himself. Uh, and that's, that is a hugely attractive feature, I think, for anyone working with him because you feel that... It's fun working with a guy who is just so relaxed about himself. I, I just wonder, you know, the that last season at Dortmund, Raphael, that's maybe, the, you know, when they slipped down to 18th and it, things looked really dire. That was, I think, the only time ever I've seen press conferences with Klopp where he looked actually worried. And for a time, maybe even... He didn't feel like maybe didn't feel like he had the, had the answers anymore, and that was of course also maybe also the impetus what made him decide to leave Dortmund ultimately. How do you see that time? I mean, that's it's a hugely interesting time, and Dortmund gave him a ton of confidence to get to get it right, to set it right. But it's just I remember that so well because I remember certain press conferences where he looked absolutely crestfallen at times, and yes. He always had that energy to get himself back up, but I just have it right in front of me, a picture right in front of me where he almost looked a little gray and just had that really long face. And that was really the only time I've ever seen that. Yeah. But of course, you know, I mean, you, you have to worry if you're 18th in the table. You, you cannot quite shrug that off after half of the season. And I think he was also getting very annoyed that he was constantly sort of being being blamed or people were saying, so asking the big fundamental questions, you know, the system, it doesn't no longer, it no longer works. The training is too hard. He ruins the players, you know, asking too much of, of them. I think you hear that once, you hear that twice, you hear that 30 times or 50 times during the season. I think after a while, you, your tolerance levels uh, threshold becomes quite, quite low. And of course, he did have those big arguments with, with journalists and became very aggressive and abrasive. But I think looking back at it now, he has decided, I think, two things for him. One is he's taken advice from uh, people who look at stats and look at numbers and look at expected goals and all these things for, for a living, analysts, uh, people in betting. And they all told, tell him, and this happened both at Liverpool and also at external um, sources, a third party, that Dortmund's first half of the season was basically a freak season because they scored not nearly enough goals uh, relative to the chances that they created and they conceded a ridiculous amount of, not 
didn't concede that many goals in total, but they conceded a ridiculous amount of goals relative to the chances they conceded. So, in fact, there's a good case. It's very um, unrewarding or, or unsatisfying, I think, for us as journalists who want to tell a story always. You know, we're storytellers mm. and we like to put things in a story. It's, it's a difficult thing to say or to admit that maybe it was just the unluckiest season a team had played for a long, long time, but the numbers, and I've heard this from enough different people to, to believe that, not from him, but really from people who are not, you know, involved in this uh, personally, uh, back it up that Dortmund just got ridiculously unlucky in the first half of the season. Mm. Talking to Kravitz, of course, he says um, there were certain small things that needed to be done, and once we got them, you immediately saw the bounce back, and then we had this fantastic results, and we finished seventh. So, I think looking back, he probably doesn't think that he did much wrong. And I think, again, that is why he's quite relaxed thinking about it now. Um, my sense, and this is the sense I also got from Dortmund, was more that the stuff that hurt really hurt the results. And I'm not talking about relationships, because this is a different story. After seven years, I think the relationships were perhaps a little bit strained and something needed to change. But the actual football wasn't that bad and was impacted by stuff that were to an extent, I think, not within his control. Um, you know, Lewandowski leaving Immobile not being the perfect uh, replacement. Uh, Hummels having a terrible season uh, at the back. And one of the most remarkable things that actually I, I found doing the research is Hummels. I asked Hummels, you know, how was it? And because Dortmund, Dortmund was saying the World Cup was a huge problem for them because you had these Dortmund players, only one had played, but the others came back feeling them, feeling like they were World Cup winners and it had a negative effect. Hummels said, yo, my problem was different. My problem was that I came back, I wanted to be the captain, wanted to be a leader, but I played crap football. So I couldn't really tell anyone anything, <laughs> which I thought was uh, really disarmingly honest. Yeah. And Klopp doesn't seem to have suffered uh, in terms of his confidence, in terms of his playing ideas, I think he's kind of ticked it off as a kind of perfect storm, a set of circumstances that weren't entirely within his control and it ultimately necessitated, necessitated a, a, a new start. And I don't think he feels that he's necessarily done anything wrong. And that's why it, it doesn't seem to have any lasting impact on him in a negative sense. Raphael, do you, do you think the fact he's got no lasting sense of him comes from what went before? Because in the book, I think one of the most captivating chapters of the book is chapter 11, um, a one, two and almost three, where you get from the very first page of that chapter, just the feeling in and around Dortmund when things um, started to get particularly good. And, you know, it says that 80,000 punch drunk screaming supporters and, you know, that's, I think when people think of Klopp in Dortmund, they think of these really good times. And do you think in a way that because he's got these memories to look back on and they were so very good memories and, you know, it almost um, ended with the best memory of all. But, you know, unfortunately, if they were beaten by Bayern Munich for Dortmund fans in that game, do you think he carries um, the success in his own mind because he thinks back to how, how well it was at Dortmund for those few seasons? Yeah, there's that. And I think there's another factor which surprised me a little bit. Before I, before I researched it, is this this idea that he's got is that you're in it not just to win stuff, but you're in it to create stories. Um, he, Christoph Biermann from F Freunde, actually pointed me to a book he did on on football in in the Ruhr area, and he interviewed Klopp for that. And Klopp tells him um, football is about sitting together and talking about games. Mm. Where were you when we beat Malaga? Where were you when we won that game? Do you remember how we felt? And there are enough of these big games, even in, when he didn't win, when they lost uh, at Mainz, uh, at Dortmund. And now beginning you know, to, to build a similar kind of canon at, uh, at Liverpool with, with the Dortmund games and the Man United games and the Man City game and the Chelsea games in the, in the league. Um, and I think that's what, what he draws strength from creating these kind of extra, extraordinary moments of happiness and uh, of that kind of emotional joy of football just reaching its peak and its crescendo. And he wants to, like, 
all adrenaline junkies. He just wants to create that again and again and again. And I think that's what he, that's why he's in it. I think that, that is where the passion for, for uh, coaching comes from. It's more, of course, it's the winning, but I think it's almost more like these special moments when things happen that, that makes it all worth for him. And because his, his, his uh, teams play a certain way and for whatever reason, um, make these things quite commonplace is why he seems to be so happy because he's basically a guy doing what he enjoys and, uh, and it keeps happening for him. Uh, for some people, it's money. For some people, it's, it's titles. I think for him, it's, it's that. Um, and of course, he's not a romanticist in a way that he only wants to have, you know, super exciting football and no results. He wants to win. But I think that's almost kind of the bigger, the bigger issue for him. He wants to create experiences and remember experiences and be part of something that, that is almost kind of eternal and historic. And uh, again, I think Liverpool in many ways is a perfect fit for that because they, I think historically, traditionally think in similar terms and have been in similar, similar situations very, very often. Well, obviously it was in 2015 we seen uh, Klopp arrive at Liverpool. I must say that I was very excited about the appointment. Uh, Chris, I can only imagine that you were rather excited as well about so this, this uh, ex- well, extravagant, excitable manager coming over from Dortmund. Yeah, it was the it was the name that everybody wanted. Liverpool had gone so close to the title with Brendan Rodgers, and you know Luis Suarez left. Daniel Sturridge got injured, and you know looking back now, I feel a little bit sorry for Brendan Rodgers because he lost something like sixty goals a season after, and you could tell Henderson, Coutinho were massively deflated from how close they'd gone. Gerrard had gone, obviously, and you know Brendan Rodgers was caught up in that and that draw at Everton. I mean, I was surprised. Uh, we'd heard rumours he potentially would go, um, no matter what the score was at Everton. But he did go, and, and every, there was only one name on everybody's lips, and it was Jurgen Klopp. Um, and I don't know, as a as a Liverpool supporter, deep down inside, I I didn't think Liverpool would be the ones to tempt him back. But you know, obviously over the moon um, when he did, and I think it's because we'd seen what he'd done at Dortmund and anyone that had watched German football had seen what he'd done at Mainz. He's got that ability to galvanise not just the players, but he galvanises the stadium. I mean, you only need to look and Raphael would have seen this straight away. You know, his first game uh, when he was away at Spurs and there was German flags in the Liverpool end with Jürgen's Reds written on it. Uh, and then, you know, we, we come back and I'm a believer um, straight away. He, he almost turned the negativity around in the club and overnight, I think, in fact, I would probably say it was overnight and everybody knew what they were getting and they'd seen him get to a Champions League final and they'd seen him win Bundesliga titles and, and um, Pokals. And yeah, I don't think you would, would have found a better fit for a manager than Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool. And Raphael, what was it about the Liverpool job that appealed to Jurgen Klopp? I mean, I'm sure there was many a club's you know, calling him up and showing an interest. But but why Liverpool? I think because of that emotional dimension to it. The ability to to take a club that's been punching below its weight in terms of results, but also in terms of the, the pull it had on on its own fans and uh, and the kind of diminished statue, statue that it had in, in world football and to put it back on the map again, domestically and internationally. And to do that all at a blue chip name and also a name I think that from a German perspective also holds a special kind of appeal because whoever is interested in football in Germany is of a certain generation who's not 30, 40 or 50 now would have maybe not 30, but let's say my age 40 and and 50 and older would have grown up with a certain fascination for Liverpool just as now people have some kind of affinity for either Barcelona uh, or Real Madrid, or maybe slightly younger people for for Man United. So it's it it is a club that that kind of captures the imagination if you are interested in football, and especially for Jurgen, who always talks about the ideal of English football, sort of an idealized version of the noise and the the tackles and the mud and the uh, the rain and and no fouls being given for ninety minutes and that kind of stuff. 
And of course, Liverpool might not actually have been as advertised when it comes to the atmosphere, for example, in, in the ground. And you could see him, I think, struggle a little bit to getting used to a, a reality that perhaps wasn't as exciting as the, the idealized version of it. But it's still uh, enough of a pull and enough of a challenge, I think, to get, really, to get him really going. And I, I personally think that it was a no-brainer for him and for the club. Um, it's almost funny, I think, especially for us who have followed German football closely, that it was between, between him and Ancelotti uh, for the job because God knows what would have happened with Ancelotti in charge. You just don't, cannot really conceive of him having any sort of real impact um, the way that Jürgen has had with all the ups and downs um, and the kind of momentum and energy that he has been able to create. So I think it was always a perfect match. And of course, to consummate that marriage, we just need now offspring in terms of a trophy or two. Yeah, most certainly. And he's into his second uh, full season there. Um, yes, he might be sitting at the top of the table with Liverpool, but um, I, I think it's definitely an improvement on, on where we were with uh, Brendan Rodgers. Um, what, Rafael, what, what do you feel needs to happen uh, at Liverpool for them to possibly get the title? Is is there anything that's, that's not quite worked out or, or lacking there that you think that he will eventually uh, put right? Yeah, I think it's obvious what's lacking. I think you there are individual and collective issues and there are issues in terms of the squad relative to, to some of the teams above them. Um, I think Liverpool are playing catch-up. They've been playing catch-up in terms of squad and individual quality for a long, long time. In 2013, by... Uh, by virtue of an happy accident, they they got very close because they had three fond players who were um, at the top of the game and were competitive and you had a Gerrard on the pitch. But it wasn't quite enough. Now, I think you're coming back to that moment where up front, this is a team that can hold its own against the very best, can even have a big impact, I think, in the Champions League, but doesn't quite have enough quality throughout the squad to carry a title challenge, realistically, in my view. So you need to strengthen. Uh, there's only so much I think a system can can do for you if your goalkeeper is not quite top class, if you are struggling to have enough depth in the centre-back positions, if perhaps there isn't a real dominating uh, midfielder who's real top class, but you have like three or four all on a similar level. I think it's testament to Klopp that he's managed to take players that others had written off completely and said they were never, ever going to be good enough and and got them out there and they performed. I mean, Lovren, for all his deserved criticism, of, you know, has, has done reasonably well under Klopp so far. Uh, Moreno, I think, is a great example of somebody that everybody wanted out. And Klopp said, hold on a minute, this guy can play. I'll just uh, I'll work on him for a year or two and see what happens. So I think he... You know, he's managed to squeeze a lot of football out of this team, but more football needs to be inside the team. And I think ultimately that comes down to a bit of backing from, from FSG. You either have to be super smart like Dortmund and find players when nobody else is looking and uh, they're huge successes, or you have to spend big and buy sort of names that you know will, will improve you straight away. And that's where the challenge is. And I think if that happens, if FSG believe in him as much as they have done so far and and continue to back him or perhaps even decide that they can trust him so much they want to invest more money in an effort to get closer to the cities and, and Man United, then I think they can actually at least get to the point where they'll be in the conversation in a more natural sense. I think right now it is just not realistic to really see them as challenges, but of course Klopp can't say that because he doesn't want to destroy the hopes and he doesn't want to destroy the momentum that he's trying to build up. And and lastly, because he doesn't think in those terms, because he wants to first win every single game and then see where you end up. That's a strategy that proved so successful at Dortmund, and I think he wants to do exactly the same. Let's see if they can build up a bit of momentum before, before Christmas and then carry that through this very difficult spell, which last year and the year before, didn't quite work out for him. Let's see if they've learned from that and have enough depth this time to deal with it a bit better. Rafael, as as a um, head coach, what do you think the biggest thing he'll have learned from 
um, last January and last winter's transfer market would have been? I don't know how much he's learned from the transfer market because this is still a a mystery that I haven't been quite able to get to the bottom of. You know, who really buys players? How does it really happen at Liverpool? I know that Klopp is in no position to scout players. I mean, he will not be able to tell you now, you know, who is the best centre-back in, in France that, that Liverpool can possibly get. That's not his job. It's never been his job and he doesn't see his role in doing that. So you need to rely on your technical department, on your sporting director to provide solutions. And if he says, which apparently, allegedly has happened, that it's Van Dijk or absolutely no one because we can't find anyone, then he takes that and, and goes with it. So you need the people below them who are paid to do their job, to do their job properly. And then, of course, you need FSG to, to, back, uh, to back that judgment. I don't think that Klopp ever said, you know, I don't, want, I don't want any new players because everyone I have is so brilliant. He might say that to the players. He might say that publicly, not to let them down and to keep them uh, on his side. But I, I don't think he would have ever said that internally. You know, don't buy me any more centre-backs. We're so good at the moment. Um, so I, I still quite don't know the dynamics there. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily down to him what happens in January, it's down to the ingenuity of the technical department and of FSG's ability to to turn people's heads. Um, I think they've shown themselves quite committed, more than I expected, in the way they pursued uh, both Van Dijk and, uh, and Keita. Um, let's see what happens if they push as hard in January, what Southampton will say this time. I think you have a reasonable expectation to be quite optimistic that the outcome might be different. Uh, what he's learned himself, I think, according to, to Kravitz, is, as I said, the importance of, of depth, the ability to rotate. I think the fact that they're no longer in the League Cup is not something he's hugely worried about. On the opposite, uh, on the contrary, I think he's reasonably happy. Um, again, I think they will use every opportunity to have a bit of a winter break themselves by going away for a few days and creating a winter break, the way that most clubs do. I think sometimes that's overlooked. When we say, you know, England, no winter break. It, there is actually usually a winter break. It just happens a little bit later. Um, and just manage manage those numbers of games a little bit better. And I think there's even signs of Liverpool becoming more complete in the sense that they become A, better in possession, and be able to mix it up a bit more. They can play a bit deeper. They can play a bit more on the counter-attack. They don't have to, I think, correspond to that cliche of that super-pressing team of just sort of press all over the pitch, which is never entirely true. Um, but I think it's getting further and further removed from that. And they are much sort of smarter and more efficient in their decision-making. And I think that is, that is the next step up for them, you know, to also to be able to win um, at 85, 90%, even though he will never admit it because he doesn't want the players to think that way. I think that is, again, is a crucial way forward. And I think, for example, the Southampton, the Southampton game now is, is, is very encouraging in that respect because it was very professional. It was the sort of game that Bayern play against Augsburg when you know they're not really that on top of the game because they don't have to be. And uh, they can save a bit of energy and then maybe really go be at the top of the game when they have to be in the next game. It's against Chelsea or for Bayern in Champions League. So I think that is that is a very good sign of progress being made. Most certainly. Um, Rafael, uh, just one final question before we wrap things up. Uh, where do you see Klopp's future then? Do, do you see him possibly going to Bayern? Because uh, they like to go a knocking and get their ways. It seems uh, would it be the German national job. Would he possibly go to Italy or, or Spain? Well, I mean, he he's told people close to him that he can see himself just coaching three clubs. But Mainz, Dortmund, Liverpool. You know, it sounds like a it sounds like a um, sports movie kind of trajectory. You know, like goal. Remember that uh, terrible uh, film series? Oh God, yeah. <laughs> I think we all know what the soundtrack to that film would be because he's had the same club, uh, same song, all three clubs. Wait, but are you saying he's going to Real Madrid? <laughs> no, no, not at all. No, I'm saying that, I mean, that would be, 
I think enough of a CV. If he mm. manages to serve, to play to coach for seven years uh, successively three times with similar success or success relative to the job, then I think he'd be very happy. I don't know if he thinks that far ahead in the future. Realistically, I think he's happy that he's got the backing from from FSG until 2022. They wanted to renew with him almost immediately, and he basically rebuffed them and said, "Come back." Um, when it doesn't rain quite as much in Liverpool, I want to think about this. And then he signed a new contract in spring. Um, I, I think the next logical step for me would be to go and coach Germany. But that will only happen if in 2022 he feels his, his, his role in Liverpool is over or if Liverpool fail, you know, they need, they need a change. I, I can see him staying a bit longer. If he, because I think two things could happen. A, if he does win the league, he becomes immortal uh, at Liverpool, and I think then he becomes almost a Wenger-type figure who who can pick and choose his own terms and his own time of departure. Or if he doesn't win in those seven years, I think he would have come close enough, often enough for FSG to say, you know what, we've tried it a few times, you got very close, let's let's try a bit more. So I think there's a there's a possibility that we will not see the end of his tenure just yet in 2022. And afterwards, I think Germany is hugely attractive to him because A, it's a logical step, B, the language is a big issue for him. I don't see him going to Spain and Italy for that reason. And uh, because also I think of the emotional... Um, Connection. I mean, once, you know, you think of it, at Mainz, you do it in front of, I don't know, 25, 30,000 people and a city of, let's say, 300,000. In Dortmund, you do it in front of 85,000 people and a city of half a million, give and take, plus a few people in the Ruhr, plus a few German fans, a few million. In Liverpool, you do it in front of 52,000, but there's basically millions and millions of fans worldwide. And uh, and a city going crazy if you have if you do it, and in Germany then you do it for 80 million people. So I think if you're in it for big stories, if you're in it for emotions, for making people happy and all that kind of stuff, being a national coach is is the logical conclusion to his own particular story. Um, but I think he's got a bit of time left before he'll do he'll do that. Uh, let's see. It'd be also interesting because he said to me, well, through his agent, that he will do his he will only do his own book. Once he retires, so uh, we'll see how long we have to wait. Uh, if it's twenty years or twenty-five years, but uh, I'm sure it'd be very interesting <laughs> uh, once he goes, you know, gets down to write his all all his stories up. I think it'd be one of the best football books ever. I think I think one thing that you're saying is quite interesting because what way? There's no better way to end a career. Than winning the World Cup, right? So that that Germany link makes a lot of sense. If you're looking for stories, uh, there is no better way to really finish off a coaching career. Absolutely, and also bring his own career full cycle because he hmm. would be a little bit like Löw, you know, a second division coach. Okay, Löw did of course coach in the first division a little bit, but without great success. Um, who suddenly wins the World Cup. Uh, I think, uh, uh, you know, as a fan of sports films as he is, I think it's almost impossible not to be somehow a little bit excited about that idea. But I think it's a bit too early for him to to put it into place. And, and in any case, I think Löw might actually stick around a little bit longer as well. Fantastic stuff. And I think that more or less draws us to, uh, to an end uh, of the pod. So um, all we can say is... Um, Thank you very much, Rafael, uh, for coming on to the podcast. We really appreciate it. Um, obviously, people, please go out there and buy his book, Club Bring the Noise. Um, you can find it online many different places, including Amazon and, and several others. But, um, Rafael, what have you got going on uh, this week? Um, you're working people uh, maybe hear your voice or, or see your face in, in the next uh, coming weeks or days. Well, we've got... Um BC Sport, the Champions League, the goal show coming up, so that's going to be quite busy. Then um, I've uh, I've sold out. I'm going to FIFA, um, <laughs> but only the FIFA Museum. Uh, so <laughs> the, 
different people there, not the East Coast. <laughs> well, I thought we were getting a massive exclusive then. Yeah, no, um, and I thought you were getting a massive payoff. Yeah, me too. I thought there'd be sort of kind of a, a suitcase or at least brown envelope, paperback uh, to carry home. But I, I've got a feeling it won't be like that. Uh, no, the people from FIFA Museum in Zurich have invited me to uh, introduce the book. They they do actually really nice events with authors and and talks and stuff. So I'll be going there on Thursday. And then we have a launch in, in Berlin uh, on Wednesday next week with El Freunde and maybe a surprise guest on stage as well. So I'm really looking forward to it. That's actually the fun bit. of um, The writing wasn't always so fun. The research was, but now this is the fun bit, sort of uh, introducing it to the rest of the world and getting the feedback and also hearing from Klopp himself, which I did on Monday, that he really enjoyed it, which was um, the, the best thing really anyone could have told me. Because it's, of course, uh, a kind of strange sensation writing a book about someone who doesn't really want the book to be written. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it is quite daunting in a way. And then to hear that he actually liked it, but uh, came as a huge relief and made me very happy. Yeah, I bet. That, that is uh, fantastic to hear. Uh, once again, thank you for coming on the podcast and we wish you all the best uh, in the coming weeks and months with the book. And yes, obviously, we'll see you on the uh, goal show as well. Um, guys, um, if you like the podcast, if you can just head over to iTunes um, and give us a bit of positive feedback, we greatly appreciate it. Apart from that, um, you'll be able to find an awful lot of content coming your way with Manu being now in Europe uh, and you just need to head over to Football Grad Live on Twitter or the Football Grad uh, website. There's going to be many a previews, uh, match reports coming your way with a busy week ahead. But uh, thank you for tuning in. Hopefully you enjoyed the club special. And I'll feed us in. Ich war seit Wochen auf diesen Tag. Und tanz vor Freude über den Asphalt, als wär's ein Rhythmus, als gäb's ein Lied, das mich immer weiter durch die Straßen zieht. Komm dir entgegen, ich hab zu holen. We can get anything delivered from furniture to toilet paper. And now, adult beverages with Drizzly. Drizzly lets you compare prices from local liquor stores on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered right to your door in under 60 minutes. And right now, Drizzly's giving all new customers $5 off their first order. Just enter promo code EASY5 at checkout. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.